As we wrap up our time of giving, I invite you to receive. Receive a word from the Lord from the book of Ruth. No sooner had Boaz gone up to the gate and sat down there than the next of kin of whom Boaz had spoken came passing by. So Boaz said, Come over, friend. Sit down here. And he went over and sat down. Then Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. He then said to the next of kin, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the section of land that belonged to our kinsman Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me, so that I may know. For there is no one prior to you to redeem it, and I come after you. So he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you acquire the field from the hand of Naomi, you are also acquiring Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead man, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance. At this, the next of kin said, I cannot redeem it for myself without damaging my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one took off a sandal and gave it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the next of kin said to Boaz, acquire it for yourself, he took off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders of all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have acquired from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malan. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, the wife of Malan, to be my wife, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance, in order that the name of the dead may not be cut off from his kindred and from the gate of his native place. Today you are witnesses." Then all the people who were at the gate, along with the elders, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you produce children in Ephrathah and bestow a name in Bethlehem. And through the children that the Lord will give you by this woman, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So... Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When they came together, the Lord made her conceive, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without next of kin. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom, and she became his nurse. The woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. The word of the Lord. Oh, man. That was awesome. I can't top that. But here we go. Despite being able to participate in something so beautiful 
as seeing all of our children help lead us in worship. Um, I'm still a little bit nervous, so I want to try something out right quick. Knock, knock. Okay, good. You know how to do that. See, there's something particular and peculiar about jokes that you know are jokes. When I say knock, knock, you know to say, who's there? Because we have this mutual understanding of what's going on the second I say that. The same thing happens whenever we hear anything about an unusual character or set of characters walking into an establishment that serves alcohol. A horse walks into a bar. We begin uh, what we call suspension of disbelief, where we sort of throw logic out the window for a second to become enmeshed in something where there's an element of unreality and we become willing to accept that. Most of us don't question why a horse is in a bar or why it can talk because we accept that element of unreality. But then there are other kinds of jokes. I'm talking about the ones where someone starts telling you a story, they present something captivating, something that urges you to keep listening because you've got to know what's going to happen next. But then at the very end, once we reach what we consider should be the climax of the story, something is like, wow, this is really cool, they drop a punchline on you instead. All of a sudden, we have this understanding that things are different than what we thought they were. All of a sudden, we have to rethink everything we just heard to understand that that story was a joke all along. We didn't have that suspension of disbelief at the beginning. Once they deliver the punchline, we're like, oh. And that understanding for a lot of us happens in a flash. It's immediate. Sometimes the reaction is predictable. Whenever I do things like this, Uh, I'm usually going to get something like an eye roll from Julie with that moment of, I can't believe I got sucked into this. What a waste of time. (laughs) Sometimes we get that introductory line that tells us how to interpret what's going on. Sometimes we get a knock-knock sort of start. Every once in a while, though, the stories we hear don't have a way of interpreting the whole thing until the very end. And I think that's how the book of Ruth works. We have this story with a once upon a time-ish beginning where occasionally things have to be explained. Like that weird thing with Boaz and where he and some dude trade sandals and that's considered a legal transaction. That's weird. I'm so glad the author bothered to explain that. But the way to interpret Ruth isn't laid out at the beginning, it's at the end. The book of Ruth ends like the joke you don't see coming. It's strange to say, but Ruth sort of has a punchline near the end. And the hidden joke there begins. It is rooted in stories from the book of Genesis. The first story that leads up to this punchline is the struggle of two sisters, Rachel and Leah. Now, Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, has children by four different women, Rachel and Leah, and their two servant girls. Now, Rachel and Leah are sisters, and a pretty good example of why monogamy is a good idea. They fight over their husband all the time. They are jealous of each other. Now, Jacob loves Rachel more. She's gorgeous. He fell in love with her. And Leah 
feels that pressure. She is envious of the love that Jacob pours out on Rachel. But Leah, she's the one who can have kids. And she has at least five for Jacob. Rachel is envious of Leah, who gives Jacob children when Rachel cannot. In Genesis 30, at one point in their story, we see a very interesting exchange between these two sisters. It says, Reuben goes out, one of the sons, he goes out to the field during wheat harvest, and he finds some mandrakes, probably a plant of some kind. Rachel asks her sister, hey, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. And Leah fires up. Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Whoa, girl, they're just plants. (laughs) Clearly something else is going on here. (laughs) So what does Rachel do? She does the logical thing and uh, uses her husband's body as a bribe for the plants. She says, you give me your son's mandrakes, you can sleep with Jacob tonight. Lee says, done. (laughs) Seems like a pretty good deal. Leah meets Jacob at the end of the workday and tells him, you must come in to me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he does that and she gets pregnant with her fifth child so far. What? That's really weird. I don't know how to make sense of that story. It's, it's really strange. That's some messed up stuff. And yet, these women are named in the blessing that the elders of Bethlehem speak over Boaz and Ruth. They tell him, May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, that's Ruth, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. They are the pillars of the house of Israel. And the struggle of Leah and Rachel is the first part of what builds up to the punchline we don't see coming. The second part of the build-up is the story of Tamar and Judah. Now, Judah is another one of the sons of Jacob. Judah has three kids of his own. Tamar marries son number one. But he is such a bad person, God kills him. Yay! Fun stories, right? So, son number two attempts to fulfill his duty. We got a little bit of that in uh, our reading today of Ruth 4, where it is the job of the next of kin to make sure that that person's uh, bloodline doesn't die out, that they maintain their inheritance. So, son number two attempts to fulfill his duty to make sure his brother's name and bloodline don't die out. But since he knew the child wouldn't legally be his, he uh, doesn't follow through. So, God kills off son number two. So, Judah takes son number three, who is too young for such things, basically hides him away. He tells Tamar, go live with your father until my youngest son is old enough. And then you can have him. But Judah is scared, and probably rightfully so, that what happens to son one and two is going to happen to his last child. Tamar knows this. She knows he's not going to uphold his end of the bargain. So eventually, Judah's wife dies. Sad things happen. And in order to console himself, he goes off to find a prostitute. He ends up finding Tamar in disguise. And Tamar becomes pregnant. About three months later, once you can tell, 
the people of her village with Judah at the front of the line are about to stone her for her sexual misconduct when she brings forth evidence that Judah is the dad. So Judah says, because I did not give her my last son, she is more righteous than I am. She gives birth to twins, one of whom is one of the ancestors of Boaz. Tamar, the mother of Perez and hostess to an important sexual scandal, is considered a blessing upon Ruth. So Ruth is blessed by the names of women, all of whom are tied to some sexual scandal or another. It's actually kind of funny how this works out. I don't think the village elders who are speaking this blessing know what happened at the threshing floor. Jake talked about it last week. This is scandalous. Boaz is clearly going to be embarrassed if someone finds this woman in the middle of the night lying with him. It's a beautiful irony that they decide to bless Ruth by Rachel, Leah, and Tamar when they don't know the scandal Ruth was involved in in the chapter before this. While we don't know the exact nature of that scandal, we can at least be sure Boaz would have been embarrassed uh, when a girl comes and lies with him while he's at least a little bit drunk. He says, it must not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And at the point of the story that we read this morning, it's kind of funny. The elders don't know about the threshing floor, and they bless Rachel, they bless Ruth by Rachel, Leah, and Tamar. But let's, let's step back for just a second. It might be tempting to read a bit too much into this. It is possible to take this a little bit too far and begin to say that sexual misconduct leads to blessings. Not the point. Not where I'm going here. There are too many other stories that say that's a bad thing to ignore. I'm not telling our young ladies here, you need to get pregnant under questionable circumstances to do something good. No. Not the point here. That's not even the punchline of Ruth. What matters here is that despite their sexual misconduct, they become blessings to the house of Israel. Rachel, Leah, and Tamar are blessings. Without Rachel and Leah, there are no 12 tribes of Jacob. There's no Judah and Tamar story without those two ladies. Without Tamar and her willingness to step outside the boundaries of her society, there is no Perez. With no Perez, there's no Boaz. These sexual scandals are not the focus of the blessing. It's how these women became blessings for Israel that matters. They paved the way for the greatest king Israel ever knew, the great King David. Indeed, because of her willingness to show faithfulness outside the official boundaries of her society, Ruth becomes a blessing to all people around her. Boaz breaks the rules of his people to show kindness to a Moabite, a woman his people are specifically told to hate. And Ruth breaks rules too. She had no business going to the threshing floor to secure her own future. But she does so because she loves Naomi. And now we draw so close to the punchline The women of Bethlehem speak a blessing over Naomi when God makes Ruth conceive. Actually, that's interesting. That's the only thing God does in the entire book. He makes sure Ruth conceives. That's it. 
God doesn't speak or do anything else. And so Ruth gives birth to a son. The women of the village tell her, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without next of kin. May his name be renowned in Israel forever. He shall be to you a restorer of life and the nourisher of your old age. At this point, the text is a little bit vague. I'm not sure who is supposed to be renowned in Israel forever or who's supposed to be the nourisher of uh, Naomi's old age. Is it God? Is it Boaz? Is it the child? It doesn't say. It's kind of vague. It's unclear, but the punchline that makes us reinterpret everything we've heard up to this point is what the women say about Ruth. She is the daughter-in-law who loves you. And she is worth more to you than seven sons. Ruth is worth more than seven sons. Now, we have to remember that in this culture, women are basically considered property whose sole purpose is making babies and taking care of the house. Seven sons is the perfect number of the perfect kind of child every woman of this culture dreams of. It's this representation of wholeness. And nothing, I repeat, nothing is more important than seven sons. But Ruth is. The women of this village who are mothers and daughters themselves, who have all hoped and dreamed of bearing children, say of this woman that she is worth more than everything they could have hoped for. For the women of our day, this could be the most important blessing in the entire Bible. Because of Ruth's faithfulness, because of her chesed, that word we learned a couple weeks ago, she is called more valuable than seven sons. And that's the punchline here. When we hear this, we have to reevaluate everything we've read and heard about Ruth up to this point. This woman who is a Moabite widow, who has no standing in society, who has no place of belonging because of her nationality and partially because of her gender, she proves herself the most valuable character in the entire village because of her faithfulness. She doesn't always follow the rules. She bypasses and breaks those rules, in fact, for the sake of being faithful to Naomi, whom she loves. And she teaches us that becoming faithful people is not always about following rules, but about choosing the highest possible good. So for us, this means we too have boundaries we need to examine, which must be either expanded or broken down entirely in order for us to be as faithful as possible. I spoke two weeks ago about how Boaz ignores the law of Moses in order to show kindness and faithfulness to Ruth. He's supposed to hate Ruth because she's from Moab, but he chooses chesed, faithfulness, instead of the rules that limit kindness and compassion and action and doing what God wants. We have particular rules that limit what people can and can't do in order to be considered faithful. Specifically, rules that determine what women can or can't do. We've listened exclusively to the words of the Apostle Paul without paying attention to other voices in Scripture. The Gospel of Luke is very generous toward women and what they accomplish for the sake of Jesus' ministry on earth. Luke isn't just generous, he's empowering. It's not 
just Luke. I mean, it's not just the gospel of Luke. He also, in Acts, lets loose women on the world to spread the gospel. And the book of Ruth is also such a voice. Ruth begins with women who are impoverished by death and the rules of the men around them and concludes with a woman being given the highest possible praise any woman could ever receive. Two weeks ago I said, thank God Boaz ignored the laws of Moses to show kindness to Ruth. And today I say, thank God Ruth ignored the rules of the men of her day to become a blessing to all the people around her. The laws we have sustained and upheld much like Moses' prohibition to help anyone from Moab, can and should be broken to become more faithful people. Therefore, if this is the case, and I believe wholeheartedly it is, then we must seriously look at the entirety of Scripture for how the whole people of God should behave. We have given a great deal of weight to the letters of Paul to see how the church ought to operate. Paul is important Yes, I will never deny that. But he is not the only voice of Scripture. We have not looked at other voices in the New Testament, like Luke in his Gospel and Acts, which sometimes give greater prominence to women than to men as to who enhances and promotes the message of Jesus. The book of Hebrews gives credit to Rahab the prostitute because of her faithfulness, because she welcomes spies in the name of peace. We have overlooked the voices of characters like the judge Deborah, Queen Esther, the daughters of Philip in the book of Acts who were prophets, even Mary, the mother of Jesus, in favor of a single person who says in actually very few texts what women can or can't do. We certainly haven't looked to this woman Ruth as a guide for how we can all break the rules to be more faithful people. We have women in this congregation who are worth more than seven sons. There are women here who don't have the same formal theological education that I do, who don't know a lick of Greek or Hebrew, who I guarantee you know the Bible better than me. The punchline of Ruth, that she is worth more than seven sons, is just the sort of divine joke we need. Because the end of her story forces us to reinterpret the entire book of Ruth, and I believe it gives us a glimpse at how to reinterpret our own story. Some women here are like Ruth, Ruth who goes out and makes things happen, and other women are like Naomi, who works from the shadows, hardly ever taking the spotlight, but sharing her wisdom with the women who do. Because here's the bottom line, the burning question, the punchline to the story we've been weaving all month. How can we be more fully faithful people of God? Do we cherry pick the few verses of the Bible which reinforce what we've always believed? Or do we listen to the broader voices of Scripture? And what is it anyway that God is doing in the world today? Because I believe in the women who are worth more than seven sons. I believe in the people like Julie Mayfield, Larissa Elliott, Dot Herod, Beverly Henderson, Megan Scott, Chelsea Valentine. I believe in those women who are worth more than seven sons. You are here and you are listening. 
And you have the power to shape our future. I mentioned at the beginning that I was a little bit nervous. That wasn't entirely true. Because this is the most anxious I have ever been to deliver a sermon. But I am also reminded of the prophet Jeremiah who says, If I say I will not mention God or speak any more in his name, then within me there is something like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in and I cannot. The burden of this message has become too great for me to keep contained any longer. I cannot sit idly by and waste this valuable opportunity to speak on this matter because there are numerous voices in scripture we have never even heard or paid full attention to that we must open our ears to, not just about this, but about every aspect of life so that we may know how God wishes us to move forward. May God bless our women who are worth more than seven sons. May God deliver the divine punchline that causes us to reevaluate our own story. And may God's glory be shown in all that we do. Amen.